Well, the Taylor Swift economy is real. Um, I thought Taylor Swift would be a great starting out point as we reflect on Psalm 98 and joy to the world. When Swift began to date uh, Travis Kelsey of the Kansas City Chiefs, the Swift economy began to benefit the NFL. In early October, the Chiefs played the New York Jets, and viewership for the game spiked to 27 million just because of Taylor Swift's attendance. That game turned out to be the most a whole season, aside from the season opener. Since Taylor Swift began attending Chiefs game, NFL viewership among teenage girls has spiked to 53%. (laughs) Women 18 to 24, 24%. Women over the age of 35, 34%. My son plays football. He's the quarterback. His favorite team is Kansas City. His favorite player is Patrick Mahomes. But on Christmas Day morning, I was notified that we needed to turn on the Chiefs Raiders games, not by my son, but by one of my daughters. Maybe the NFL and Taylor Swift are not joys in your life, sources of joy. But considering the Chiefs' recent record, I'm not sure that Taylor Swift is a joy for Chiefs fans either. But it begs the question, what gets you excited? What is it that makes you joyous? And maybe that's preparing a tried and true recipe that others are able to enjoy. It's time alone, listening to a particular genre of music. Maybe it's tinkering around with your favorite hobby. No matter what it is, no matter what it is that brings you joy, it's pretty plain to see that for us as, a human, be- as human beings, we were made for joy. We were made to get excited. We find ourselves rejoicing over the completion of a project, for example, a successful recipe, the outcome of a football game. But what about God? Does God bring us that kind of joy? Do we experience joy for who he is and what he's done, what he will do? And I ask that question not to invoke a sense of guilt, but rather just simply as a check-in. Because I suspect for many of us, our picture of God doesn't include joy, at least not that kind of joy. Why is that? Well, this morning we continue in our sermon series, Lessons and Carols. And each week throughout the Advent and Christmas season, we've been reflecting on traditional Christmas carols that we also sing with an eye towards understanding the song's lyrics and history, and how the history and the lyrics contribute to our understanding of Christ's nativity. This morning, we contemplate and we sing the carol, Joy to the World, written by the famous hymn composer Isaac Watts in 1719. Now, originally, Watts didn't compose this song for Christmas. Rather, it was a reflection on Psalm 98, which was originally included in an anthology entitled The Psalms of David, Imitated in the Language of the New Testament. Quite the title. The music for the song was composed by Lowell Mason, who adopted the melody from the second movement of Handel's Messiah. That's one reason why the song became so popular for us as a culture to sing. It's only the reality that the church recognized that this song as a Christmas carol 
It evokes these themes from Psalm 98, and it helps us to grasp the meaning of Christ's birth. And we could summarize it simply. The birth of Christ inspires joy. Psalm 98, one of the messianic psalms, it celebrates God as king. And it tells us the reason we can be so joyful, so celebratory. And it's because of God's judgment. Now that sounds weird. We're actually celebrating in this song the judgment of God. When we hear the word judgment, it doesn't typically carry positive connotations. You know, we're thinking about someone who's been judgmental toward us in a hurtful way. Or maybe we're thinking in apocalyptic terms like Terminator Judgment Day with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Why would God's judgment be a source of joy? That's what we want to explore here over the next few minutes. And the place that I think that we need to begin is our cultural understanding of justice. If God's judgment is a source of joy, it can be helpful for us to consider the nature of justice in our culture today. Probably more than any other city in America, we here in Portland care about justice. We have a value for justice. And that's, that's a true, a tried and true gospel reality, something that can be affirmed about the culture of our city. But whose justice are we talking about? You know, through the latest headlines, it's becoming clear that we're living in a society filled with competing claims of justice. And this is all rooted in the Enlightenment movement back in Europe in the 17th and 18th century. The Enlightenment profoundly shaped the view of justice in Western culture. Philosophers such as John Locke, Voltaire, Kant, David Hume, they advocated for a worldview no longer built on theology, no longer with a reference toward God, but instead built on individual reason and subjective understanding. Author and pastor Tim Keller, who passed away just this past year, wrote an essay back in 2020 on justice that I think describes the impact of enlightenment thinking on our current cultural understanding of justice. And he writes this in part of that essay. The social consensus on morality and justice that Enlightenment thinkers thought they could achieve by leaving religion behind has not been realized. And McIntyre, another philosopher, explains why. In his famous wristwatch illustration, he shows it is impossible to determine if a watch is a good or a bad watch unless you know what it is for. Is it for hammering nails? Telling you the time of day. Without knowing the telos or the purpose of the watch, any evaluation of it is impossible. Likewise, unless you know what human beings are for, you will never come to any agreement as to what good or bad behavior is and therefore what justice is. The secular view is that human beings are just here through chance. We are not here for any purpose at all. But if that is the case, then there is no good way to argue coherently on secular premises and beliefs about the world that any particular behavior is wrong and unjust. Human rights are based on nothing more than that some people feel they are important. Not everyone does, however. And what do you say to those people who don't believe in them and don't honor them? Why should your feelings take precedent over someone else's? 
After David Hume, no modern theory of justice has any answer other than because we say so. So this explains, in part, why justice is so challenging in our culture today. And as this continues, there's several things that will continue to be true for us as a culture moving forward. First, justice will be nothing more than a set of competing claims. Increasingly, as a society, we're using terms like agenda, bias, partisanship to describe the current state of affairs. If my view of justice is different from your view of justice, it is impossible to arrive at any notion of a just decision or a just society. Even secular agreed-upon ideas such as plurality or inclusion rapidly evaporate at the point of personal disagreement. Justice in flux is not a reliable justice. Second, love for others in this climate is too demanding. It's too hard. It's too difficult. It's too demanding. Without God, a person will find their identity in something else. Their socioeconomic status, their race, their maybe even their philanthropic generosity. That identity will shape moral judgment. And it will shape a vision for justice. And rooted in these sorts of identities, a person will easily embrace those around them who share those identities. But they will find it difficult, if not impossible, to love, to forgive, or to sacrifice for those who differ. To love your enemies requires humility. And that is just too costly for a person anchored in these sorts of identities. And therefore, the only other option is to cancel the people who disagree with you. Third, there is no final justice. Without God, our imperfect and incomplete struggle for justice is just that. At the end of our life, when we breathe our last breath, we are without hope. Because as we close our eyes, justice is just that. It's incomplete. It's imperfect. From Dunn, what did it all mean? Why did we even care? Now that we're all thoroughly depressed about our current state of affairs, uh, Psalm 98 tells us some good news. It tells us that we can actually sing a new song because of the judgment of God, because of God's justice. And there's three revelations here in Psalm 98 that will transform our cultural view of justice and therefore bring us great and enduring joy. First, and this is kind of the reverse of everything that I just said. First, in Christ, God reveals true righteousness. In Christ, God reveals true righteousness. I had a check engine light uh, that's been on in our van for quite some time. <clears throat> and on Tuesday, um, I will be performing or hope to be performing a repair that will be nothing short of neurosurgery. For this, uh, there's two things that I have going for me. One, my father-in-law is in town, and he's been a mechanic all of his life. So he's going to be out in the garage with me for eight or ten hours, and uh, we'll be doing this together. Secondly is the miracle of YouTube, uh, of going and finding people who have actually done all these things, torn all these things down, put it all back together. 
I would be crazy for what needs to be done for me just to pop the hood and go in and start trying to tinker around with this myself. And if we need to go outside of ourselves to find the best answer for something as mundane as a car repair, how much more do we need to consult the creator of the universe around questions of morality? Around questions of true and objective justice about what's right and wrong. The great Catholic priest and author Thomas Merton in his own autobiography, I think he describes our dilemma well. He writes, I think if there is one truth that people need to learn in the world, especially today, it is this. By the way, when he wrote this, it's like early 20th century. But notice how pertinent and relative this is. He says, the intellect is only theoretically independent of desire and appetite in ordinary actual practice. It is constantly being blinded and perverted by the ends and aims of passion. And the evidence it presents to us with such a show of impartiality and objectivity is fraught with interest and propaganda. We have become marvelous at self-delusion. All the more so because we have gone to such trouble to convince ourselves of our own absolute infallibility. Paul in his own day, in writing to the church in Rome, he describes the relief that Christ provides us in regards to the truth. He says in Romans 10, being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they have not submitted to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Do you hear that? Like even back in the first century, people are trying to create their own sense of righteousness, a self-righteousness. And Paul's saying it's not going to work. But if we find our righteousness in Christ, we will become righteous. And so we sing joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. And if you make Christ your king, let me go ahead and warn you. It's hard it is difficult to be a Christian. It's way easier just to say, I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to do whatever I want. To Christ is difficult. When I read scripture, Jesus tells me stuff all the time that I don't like. Jesus tells me stuff that cuts across the grain of my own desire. He calls me to do things that I don't want to do. But at least I know the truth. And John, in his gospel, speaks, or Jesus rather, speaks to what this truth will do to us. Jesus says, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. That freedom that we long for with self-discovery, it's an illusion. True, genuine truth that leads to human flourishing. It's found as disciples of Jesus. Second, in Christ, God reveals his forgiving love. In Christ, God reveals his forgiving love. Now, we read the gospel accounts. Jesus was often critical, not of the people who were broken or lost or confused. I mean, those people knew they didn't have it all together. Who did Jesus criticize? He was critical of the self-righteous. And the self-righteous in Jesus' day had become so because they rooted their identity in something other than God. And if you shared that identity, you were accepted. You were part of the club. But if you didn't, you were canceled. 
some things never change. Psalm 98.3 tells us something the opposite of that about God's love for us. It says, He faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the victory of our God. Now that phrase in English that's quite lengthy, steadfast love and faithfulness, it's one word in the Hebrew language, hesed. And that word in Hebrew describes a loving, a faithful, a patient, an enduring love that God has for Israel and therefore the whole world. It's in Christ that we find a God who not only reveals true and enduring righteousness, but a God who is willing to die in our place for our failure to achieve it. The God of the Bible doesn't cancel his enemies. Instead, he dies for them, and then he invites them to become his family. His love that kind of love, it gives us the ability to love people in our life that are really hard to love. As we'll sing in a moment, he comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Third, in Christ, God will render a final judgment. In Christ, God will render a final judgment. And we often want to avoid this subject. Hell, fire, and brimstone. But in Psalm 98, 7 through 9, we find that creation is excited about it. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who live in it. Let the floods clap their hands. Let the hills sing together for joy at the presence of the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth and the peoples with equity. You know, in the Pacific, in the Pacific Northwest, we have a kindred even spiritual relationship with nature. I hope that we can hear nature on this point. The ocean, the rivers, the hills. None of the created order is content with the brokenness of this world. The created order acknowledges that there are too many loose ends to injustice, too many crimes that go unpunished, too much pain that is never healed, too many diseases that don't have cures. And Psalm 98 tells us that God is coming to judge the earth, to judge the world finally, once and for all, with righteousness and the people with equity. The final judgment of God is that long-awaited outcome that we're always hoping, albeit secretly even maybe, in our heart. And the invitation here at the end of Psalm 98, here and now, is to join God in the created order in preparation for that last great day. When Jesus says he's coming to make all things new. This morning we've gone from Taylor Swift to David Hume, to the advent of Christ, to the judgment of God. And as we start a new year, I want you to know that you can be a person filled with joy. Filled with joy because of the judgment of God. Three things just in review. First, the truth of Christ will set you free. I want to invite you this morning to turn away from ruling your own life. I think a lot of us have lived enough life to know that us leading the way, it doesn't work out most of the time. But if you follow his lead, you will find true and lasting freedom, the type of freedom that you've been looking for all along. Secondly, the love of Christ will empower your ability to love. 
Now, sometimes the people around us are hard to love, difficult to forgive. But if God loved you enough to die for you so that he could call you his own, we have all the security and all the power that we need to love those who are hardest to love in our life. Finally, the judgment of Christ will give you hope. You know, with God, there's, there's no nihilism. There's no loose ends. The new world that began in the resurrected body of Christ is the world that awaits us at the end. So let every heart prepare him room.